If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 33. As we continue through our sermon series in Matthew, we continue to read through the book of Genesis. As our Old Testament reading, how good it is to hear God's word read and to receive it, not as the word of men, but as the very word of God. And so I'll invite you to lend attention, for this is God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way back from Padam Aran. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 6. Our scripture reading will be verses 14 and 15. Doubtlessly, at some point in your Christian life, you will be called upon to forgive someone. Perhaps that is the very situation you are in right now. As other Christians can tell you, sometimes it's relatively easy to forgive. 
even a joy. And sometimes it is terribly difficult to forgive. And even the desire to do so may be hard to find. Scripture teaches much about the grace of forgiveness. This morning, our Lord gives us a brief but sobering teaching on the necessity of forgiveness. But he says more than simply, you must forgive. He also gives us the understanding and knowledge, both of ourselves and of our God, which animates our forgiveness. In other words, he places us in the only position and posture that makes possible our forgiveness of each other from the heart. There is much that could possibly distract you from the plain teaching of Christ contained in these verses. Fight the temptation to overthink this. Fight the temptation to destroy this with a thousand qualifications. Fight the temptation to think up hypothetical exceptions to this. Fight to hear the plain word of our king. His teaching does not answer all of our questions on the practical course of forgiveness. He does, however, situate us at the heart of the matter. And so with that, hear the word of the Lord. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, that you have spoken is truly wonderful, and that you have spoken in grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ is our great and eternal blessing. And so we ask that as our King, the revelation of grace and truth, indeed wisdom beyond description, as our King instructs us, Lord, posture us aright at his feet to receive from him the one whom you set forth to bring true light, true understanding. Father, we seek understanding, we seek knowledge in so many silly places. Help us to see the fountain of wisdom in the Lord Jesus Christ and your goodness extended to us in teaching us through him. May we receive, Father, of this great gift. May we be humbled as the magnitude of it dawns upon us. And may we walk fittingly in the light of the mercies which you have opened unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. There is a saying... Don't put the cart before the horse. Or perhaps stated differently, that's 
putting the cart before the horse, if somebody cocky says it to you. It's an old saying, it seems, as I survey our social landscape and find neither carts nor horses. But it still seems to communicate, doesn't it? Even if you've never been in a horse-drawn carriage, you know that putting the cart before the horse would render the whole thing useless and laughable. You know that to put these things in their wrong order would end up making a mess of the situation. The Lord here presses an issue. It's an issue he's already introduced, both in Matthew 5, the teaching of servants who find themselves offering a gift to the altar and then remembering that their brother has something against them and he instructs them on what to do. And it's an issue he's just raised in the Lord's Prayer with the particular petition, forgive us our debts as we also forgive or have forgiven our debtors. He's reminding us of the reality of sin. That even as his followers, we're not going to be immune from this reality of doing harm to one another, of wronging one another. He assumes it's going to take place. He assumes it's going to take place rather regularly. Does he not? That's the plain implication of his words. Our experience confirms this, doesn't it? We know this to be the case. Our experience further conforms that this can be quite difficult. The harm that we do unto others, the harm that we receive unto others causes mild or even severe crises in our midst. So the question is, what do you do in the face of such things? If the Lord in his infinite wisdom has decided that that's going to be a part of our life together as his people, then it stands to reason that he's not left us without recourse in the midst of that. And it also stands to reason that there is a purpose for him leaving us in such a situation. And it also stands to reason that he does not leave us to our own devices, either in terms of instruction or power in the face of such situations. Here the Lord teaches us plainly that unless you remember that the horse must come before the cart, the whole thing is going to be an embarrassing mess. Verses 14 and 15 teach us plainly, hear this, please, that we are not first and foremost those who need to forgive. We are first and foremost those who need forgiveness. Every single one of us. We are not first and foremost those who have been wronged. We are first and foremost those who have wronged the infinite and eternal one. Our maker, indeed, our father. That's the basic thrust of this teaching. This is the horse before the cart of the call of our forgiveness. And this need for forgiveness is true of us as Christians. Not slightly, not occasionally, 
but fundamentally and constantly. And it's only keeping those realities in order. It's only grappling with the magnitude with which that is true of every single one of us that we are led, moved, drawn to be able to forgive freely when the inevitable wrong and harm in our midst takes place. Here the Lord ties the need for us to forgive in our regular need for forgiveness from our Father. Making the rejection of another in need of forgiveness an embarrassing monstrosity. A severe incongruity the likes of which he speaks against in the plainest of terms and not just here. Is there someone who has wronged you? Is there someone whom you are struggling to forgive? Whatever the magnitude of the wrong against you, The only softening of your heart towards such a one is to be found not in them, but in your position before the Father as one written and established constantly by pure mercy in the forgiveness he extends to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So hear the plain and challenging word of our Lord this morning. As he teaches us, first, we need forgiveness from the Father. Second, the Father does forgive in the Son. And third, we must forgive others. First, we need forgiveness for our sins against the Father. That's assumed, is it not? It's one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. It's assumed in his instructions here. The Father will forgive you or the Father will not forgive you. Whatever you want to say about that, it is plain. We need forgiveness. That our need is for forgiveness. You can feel the emphasis. It's the only petition that he's singled out for further comment. That alone gives it a certain amount of oomph, if you will. Further, it's not even the petition that instinctively we think needs more comment. As I was reading the petition, I'm like, well, say more about the nature of the kingdom. Say more about heaven. Heaven sounds fascinating to me. You mean your will is done there in a way that it's not done on earth? Say more about that. What what, what exactly does bread encompass? Say say more about that. What am I seeking? Who is the evil one? What am I asking for when I ask you not to lead me into it? Say more about that. He says, no. (laughs) This is what I want you to take away. You need forgiveness. (laughs) Now, it's plain that he is explaining here the petition, forgive us our debts. Now, notice he shifts from debts to wrongdoing, making it plain that the Lord is not interested in your financial situation per se. (laughs) 
Or at least he hasn't embedded it perennially into the Lord's Prayer. He's expositing the metaphor here that a debt in this instance is the reality of sinners before God. Meaning when wrong is done, a certain relationship is formed wherein I owe the Lord something. You can look at this from a number of ways. You can look at it as man owes God obedience and he's treacherously withheld it. And so now he owes God for what he has stolen. (laughs) But whatever it is, the Lord is opening up our reality to that metaphor to say you need forgiveness, you need pardon. This is nothing you can repay. You need him to release you. You need him to excuse you. You need him to pardon you. That's what you need. And the fact that he singles this out for further comment highlights that there's something basic about this posture that is most fitting for us as we approach him in prayer. Indeed, all of our approaches unto God. Calvin goes out of his way to make sure that we don't mistake the fact that the fifth petition is forgiveness as somehow commenting on how important it is to seek the Lord's forgiveness. And I think he's validated his observation exegetically for this Teaching about our need for forgiveness grounds the entirety of his teaching on prayer. That somehow if we were to approach God through some other channel, if we were to posture ourselves before God in some other way as something other than poor in spirit, as something other than utterly impoverished by virtue of the work of our hands and what our heart is capable of, then there's a sense in which we've misunderstood the glory of the approach that he has opened unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need forgiveness, beloved, regularly. Regularly. We don't like this. You don't like this. I don't like this. This is difficult for us, is it not? We don't like to hear that the depth of our need is simultaneously comprehensive, this great, and it's not as morally neutral as we're comfortable with. Fine, I need bread. I'm human. I need water. I'm human. I need clothes. I need shelter. I'm human. That ain't on me. That's also from Calvin. He says, that ain't on me. (laughs) Fine, I need those things. But sin, forgiven? Also from Calvin. I'll grant you, I need understanding. I need understanding. A lot of the time, I just need understanding. Right? He's tired. He's hungry. He's hangry. He's had a hard day. I just need to be understood. If you understood me, you'd excuse me. I need understanding, right? But sin? Regularly? Basically is what constitutes my existence before you? Forgiveness? That's harder. It's too much, we might be tempted to say. Doesn't that mess with my self-esteem? Doesn't that mess with my self-esteem? 
Shouldn't I love myself? And doesn't that daily reckoning with sin and failure generate self-loathing? Beloved, hear me in this, because I think there is a legitimate question in that. Hear me in this. Self-love will get you exactly nowhere. Self-esteem in and of itself is relatively useless. It is God's love that you need. It is his esteeming you. And the door into the splendor of God's love is the dreadful truth about our sin. The door into the splendor of otherworldly love, which is far better than self-love. The gateway into being esteemed highly by God, which is far securer than self-esteem, is the truth about you as a sinner. Not as one who has sinned once, excusably, understandably, mildly, but as one who has never really obeyed ever fully. Unless you grapple with that, which is exactly who Christ reveals us to be, which is the prelude to the excellencies of God's love on display in Christ. You're always going to have a low view of Christ because he's the provision for that depth of need, beloved. Other things may be true of you. You could imagine encountering Anna in her misery. She set her marriage on fire. She's forsaken her husband. She's taken up an illicit lover. Yet even on her deathbed, she understands her true need. On her deathbed, she doesn't content herself with the delusion that I really need physical health. She doesn't content herself with the delusion that will characterize the rest of her life. What I really need is to become a master painter. What I really need is to build hospitals and fill my life with philanthropic endeavors. What I really need is a true lover, a lover who understands me, the depth of which I alone understand. No, what she sees is her true need in that moment is forgiveness. Forgiveness granted to her from the one she has wronged. Beloved, that's your true need. Other things may be true of you. You may be hurt. You may be wronged. You may be tired. You may be hungry. You may be grieved. But none of those things displace the fundamental need, which is you need forgiveness, beloved. Because if we're quite honest with ourselves, all the wrongs that we experience, all of the tiredness we experience, all the hunger we experience very quickly give way to revealing a deeper, darker reality, which is our sin, is it not? Because we don't respond to wrong done against us commensurately. We respond to it incommensurately, which is to say we respond to it sinfully, which says what? We have a more basic need. And it's the reality of sin. Are you tracking with me? Is everybody tracking with me? Are you feeling this? That's also a question from Calvin. 
This is who Christ says we are. This is what Christ says that we need. Can you hear him on this? I don't know what voice you're listening to about what you really need, internal or external, but I assure you this voice is better. Consider the one from whom it comes. Consider that he went upon a tree to showcase another worldly love. Receive this from that one. It's a hard word, but it comes to one who has demonstrated his excellencies, hasn't he? One who heals, provides, gives. This is who he says you are. One who needs forgiveness. Unbelievers, hear this. Hear this. This is true of you in a most fundamental way. I love you. You need to hear this because it is the gateway unto otherworldly love. Unto knowing a love of a different kind altogether. One that's not tethered to your performance, but one that is tethered to his purpose of revealing himself in glory. Christians, the Lord is talking to you first and foremost. That's what he plainly indicates when he says, your heavenly father, your father. He's addressing the covenant community here. He's addressing the church here. Do you consider yourself in this way? Do you consider yourself as one whose fundamental need before God is forgiveness, is mercy in the Son? Or have you somehow left that off? Is forgiveness and mercy just something unbelievers need? Or worse, is forgiveness and mercy something only bad Christians need, but not like you? Back up. You're in terrible danger if you think that. Back up. You are far, far, far from the posture of blessing if you think that. Have you ceased to approach God in the way of mercy, in the way of lowliness, in the way of seeking grace? That is to characterize all of our approaches unto God. Entertain no delusions about your right of access natively considered. Let that fact permeate the very core of your being. Whatever gains you've made in godliness have not put you beyond your need for grace. I assure you in the degree to which you think that is the degree to which you have not gained in godliness. I assure you. Man, I'm coming out hot. Do you feel it? Good. Because I had to feel it all week. The wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ is not that he's willing only to say hard things unto us. We should thank him for that. When we consider how quick we are to tickle one another's ears, we should thank him that he is not of that kind. He says hard things to us, but that's not where the wonder ends. For he also teaches us that in him, God forgives. Second, the Father forgives our sins in the Son. It would be easy to overlook that fact from this passage. 
It'd be easy to miss the centrality of the Son in this reality. But let's remember where we are. We're at his feet. Jesus is teaching. He's called his disciples. He's gathered them. They are receiving from the king. We are receiving from the king. Right now, the king is addressing you. He is central. There's no hope of forgiveness without the centrality of the son. And so just because he's not explaining the mechanics of salvation in terms of forgiveness here like Paul does, don't miss the fact that he's standing right in front of us, teaching us about the reality of forgiveness. And that coheres with Matthew's entire understanding about forgiveness, doesn't it? Think back to the very beginning. What's his name? His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Coming off the mountain as he teaches and demonstrates an authority that places people in awe, he engages in a series of miracles, all trading on this concept of authority. He has authority over leprosy. Cleansed, he's cleansed. He has authority apparently over sickness by virtue of a word that doesn't even require him to be in proximity. Because the centurion comes, he says, healed, healed. The same with Peter's mother-in-law, fever, gone. Same with the wind and the waves, no. Same with demons, no. They go where he tells him in the climax of these demonstrations of his authority. Matthew 9. They lower a man from the roof, and he says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And they marvel That such authority is to be found among men. That Christ's authority from the Father extends to pardoning sins, not sins against anyone other than God himself. (laughs) He's forgiving sins. That's why he came and it sits at the very heart of the community's life together in well-familiar words, beloved. As he's about to go to the cross, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Father sends the Son. The Father authorizes the Son. The Son purchases forgiveness. This is no slight provision, beloved. And it is opened unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can go back to that earlier observation that these two things hold together. Our perception of the need will inevitably be tied to our perception of the provision. Understanding a slight need will inevitably generate a slight view of the provision, I assure you. So let's reason backwards. Is the provision slight? In the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God becomes man. Infinity eclipsed. Eternity eclipsed. No slight provision. And not just that, he didn't come as one of the great ones, but he came as a servant. And not just that, he was willing to die and be numbered among the transgressors. And not just that, he took our particular sins upon him, becoming a curse, which is what we should be, so that blessing alone could flow unto us. Is that a slight provision? Are your sins slight? Hand in hand, these two things go together. 
A slight view of Christ is a slight view of your sins. A slight view of your sins will inevitably lead to a slight view of Christ. What's the remedy for this? It's rather simple. (laughs) Spend more time with Christ. Spend time gazing upon him, his excellencies, the God-man. Think of how impressed we get with such paltry people. This is the God-man, the king who became a servant. This is the one in whom the wisdom of God is open. This is the one in whom the grace of God is opened. This is the one in whom the mystery of God as one who is perfect in justice and perfect in mercy is showcased for all the world to see. And we get impressed with, I'll say it, Tolstoy? This one's better. He's more impressive. And the higher the view of Christ, the clearer a view of our sins, interestingly enough, because Christ is the provision for our sins. In Psalm 144, David marvels at God's care for him. He sings, what is man that you regard him, O Lord, or the son of man that you think of him? He marvels at what God has given him. He marvels that God takes note of him. He marvels that he can address God, that he can call upon God, that he can claim promises from God, that he can have recourse to God. And he marvels from a position of humility saying, who am I that such things should be done to me from you? I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm a breath. I'm a passing shadow. If David surveyed what the Lord had given him and was moved to such a posture of humility, how much more for us who live on the other side of the cross, the other side of the God-man, the other side of the mystery of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how a holy God can live and dwell in the midst of an unholy people by forgiving, cleansing, and establishing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I assure you, it's only from this position of humility staggering wonder that the Lord has thus dealt with you. It's only in the light of your regular need for forgiveness and God's regular provision of forgiveness, only from this position and posture are we enabled to forgive regularly. Are we enabled to see rightly? And so we can consider last, we must forgive others. That's the thrust of this whole passage, is it not? The call is to forgive. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Say what you want about that, it's plain that our forgiveness of one another is rather important, is it not? Again, don't overthink it. Don't press it into some 
unnecessarily convoluted strand of logic just hear the plain teaching followers of christ forgive our king calls us to forgive he supplies us with everything necessary to forgive that's the heart of the matter isn't it that's what rings forth so plainly does it not don't lose this in hypotheticals. Don't lose this in some sort of theological syllogism. It is most fitting that we are rich in forgiveness towards one another. <gasps> it's like the most unobjectionable thing ever uttered, ever. In other words, it is repugnant for Christians to be miserly in forgiveness repugnant miserliness in and of itself is repugnant right everybody knows Scrooge is a villain you're not under any delusion when you open a Christmas carol be like oh, I wonder if this is the good guy <laughs> no he, he seems to be kind of a jerk <laughs> Why? Because he has a lot. And he doesn't give it to anybody. <laughs> even nature teaches us that. You don't even need to be a Christian to see that he's not very pleasant. How much more for Christians who understand that the riches into which they have been welcomed are not what they have earned are not what we have merited. In fact, it is the opposite of what we have merited. And that opens up for us what? A dreadful and bewildering incongruity of one sinner who refuses to forgive another sinner. Now again, he's not talking about all the possible ways and Difficulties in which this principle needs to be worked out. He's putting us at the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that in the light of our sins against God, sins against me are paltry. In the light of your sins against God, sins against you are paltry. That's hard for us too, isn't it? That's hard for us, isn't it? And it's doubly difficult for us because there's simultaneously a strand of legitimacy in there and an illegitimate strand in there, right? The strand of legitimacy says, hey, we really do harm each other in some pretty dreadful ways. And I'm not even just talking about like the way the world treats the church. I'm talking about the way the church treats the church. I'm talking about the way Christians treat other Christians. Even if you just look at it that way, you're like, oh, wow, that's hard. To forgive, that would be hard. And there's a place for that. We're not called to adopt some sort of Pollyannish view about that. In fact, that would minimize the magnitude of grace, isn't it? Wouldn't it? If this were a slight call then the magnitude of grace extended unto us in the fulfilling of that call would also be minimized. It's a high call. 
It's a hard call. It's a counterintuitive call. It's another worldly call. It's a call which is beyond us, left to our native devices. So there is a strand of legitimacy in that. You hear, wait, sins against me are literally not worth comparing to my sins against God by virtue of his high exalted person and the regularity with which I don't just a little bit disobey, but have never really ever truly obeyed? Yes. All the wrong done against one another in the light of that vertical consideration are Paltry. That's Christ's teaching on the matter. It is difficult. And just as there is a legitimate strand in there that says, hey, we really do hurt one another a lot, and sinners can be really rough, there's also an illegitimate strand in there, and it's that we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves, don't we? Who would deny that to be the case? That we are slower to mercy than we are to whatever operating conceptions of justice that have both those legitimate and illegitimate strands within them. But consider the one who's teaching us. Consider where he's headed. Consider what he's doing. He has the authority to teach on these things because he's the one who doesn't just overlook sin, doesn't just speak the debt away, but pays it in his blood, pays it in his life, and pays it for a people who do not realize the preciousness of the cost in this life. I'm not even going to develop that point. The Lord teaches his people here about the dangers of a possible externalism. I'll end with this. It's plain that we need to forgive, that the necessity of forgiveness is upon us and that it comes to us from our king, and thus we are not left to our own devices, either for its execution or our understanding on how to proceed. But it's also plain that we cannot consider the necessity of forgiveness as one of meriting forgiveness. That's plain, is it not? The ridiculous of hearing this teaching as somehow saying at the same time, I am utterly dependent upon a mercy that I do not deserve and I deserve your mercy is incoherent. That's how a meritorious reading of this passage would read. Forgive me my sins, which means please have mercy to me, which means I have forfeited all claims of ownership among you, which means I have not merited anything before you. So to read this in a meritorious nexus is to say that, and oh, by the way, I deserve this. Oh, by the way, you have to by virtue of an absolute claim that I have upon you. Such can't stand. Can you see that? Can you see how silly such a thing is? Rather, the Lord here is instructing the church, and he's in the midst of instructing us about the dangers of externalism. 
the externalism that comes threatening almsgiving, the externalism that comes threatening prayer, the externalism that comes threatening fasting, all of our religious life. He's dressing the church, and he's going to do this in the same way at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here he's saying, not everyone who takes the name Father upon their lips bears the truth of its substance. Not everyone who claims the name Father is a true son. Do you want to know whether or not you're a true son? Do you want a gauge for how tapped into the substance of you are? How ready are you to forgive? How quick unto mercy are you? Because that's the heart of the matter, isn't it? It's not just that we bear the name sons in name only. It's that the substance of the matter is that he is making us sons such that we flicker forth something of the substance. Because who are we resembling in this? In this forgiving freely. In this extending of mercy to those who have wronged us. Who do we look like in that? We look like the Father who has revealed himself in this way in the Son and who is pleased to cause something of this wonderful manner of life to flicker forth in our midst. Beloved, seek the heart of the matter. Sit at his feet until you find your heart filled with awe at the mercy you've received, at the mercy you continue to receive, at the mercy you will receive. And seek the fashioning influence of that mercy upon your heart, such that you are inclined unto mercy to all who come into contact with you. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this great king, this king like no other. In a world that is so marred by quickness to condemn and quickness to write off and quickness to destroy, how beautiful that you have shown yourself to be patient and kind and rich in grace and mercy. How beautiful it is that you are not willing to entertain our delusions, Lord, of self-sufficiency, but you accost us at this level. How wonderful that you do not leave us hopeless as that hard word of need continues to confront us, that you've provided most richly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see these things, Lord. Help us to live in the light of them. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we have been saved. We pray in Christ, amen.